Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. 2020 has been a tumultuous year, and the toll on our hospitality industry continues, with many restaurants having to shutter their doors after decades in business. One of New Orleans' most significant losses came in July, when K. Paul's closed permanently. On this week's show, we're remembering that incredible eatery and all the magical things that happened there with Sandy Hansen, who was at K. Paul's from the day they opened the doors, and from her brother-in-law, Chef Frank Brightston, who credits his culinary success to his friend and mentor, a man he simply calls Chef. Then, we remember the indomitable, effervescent, and brilliant writer Julia Reed, who for decades covered politics, art, food, and hospitality in publications like Newsweek, Vogue, and the New York Times, while always advocating for the revival of her beloved Mississippi Delta home. Julia lost her battle with cancer in August of this year, but on this episode, We'll once again hear Julia at her rollicking, hilarious best. We're remembering places and people we've loved and lost on this week's Louisiana Eats. Chef Paul Prudhomme changed the American food scene forever with his creative, exuberant love for Creole and Cajun food. In 1975, he became the first American chef to take the reins at Commander's Palace, where the world first had a taste of his culinary genius. In 1979, Paul and his wife, Kay Prudhomme, opened a tiny 62-seat restaurant in the French Quarter called Kay Paul's Louisiana Kitchen. Serving up blackened redfish and jalapeno cheddar yeast rolls, the spot became an overnight sensation. Patrons lined up around the block, sometimes for hours, to grab a seat at one of their communal tables. In its heyday, K. Paul's was one of the most popular eating places in New Orleans and among the most influential in the United States. K. died of cancer in 1992, and Paul passed away in 2015, but family owners kept the business going until the pandemic hit in March. In July, they announced K. Paul's would be closing its doors permanently, a victim of the COVID-19 economy. It's a devastating blow that closes a chapter in our city's culinary history. But the spirit of Kay, Paul, and their legendary restaurant lives on in the memories of everyone who walked through Kay Paul's doors, including its employees. 
Not long after Paul's death in 2015, Louisiana Eats spoke with one of his most celebrated protege, Chef Frank Brightston of Brightston's Restaurant, and Frank's sister-in-law, Sandy Hansen, both K-Paul veterans from the restaurant's earliest days. Frank and Sandy reminisced over memories of their time there and the profound impact both Kay and Paul had on their lives. You know, Paul and Kay are responsible for me being who I am and where I am and for Sandy and her sisters, uh, us all being together. Sandy is one of the three sisters that led the charge, you know. She came to New Orleans first and then Rhonda followed later and then Marna came to visit one Christmas and we fell in love. So here we are 30 years later. What a wonderful, wonderful story. And it all intersects with Paul and Kay. Sandy, you and I were sitting together actually at Paul's funeral. And that's when you began to tell me the most amazing tale. Tell me about how you met Kay, Paul's wife, and how the two of you came to work together. Well, it's a long, strange story, but we had uh, both arrived in town near the same time, and we were actually working at the dungeon, (laughs) (laughs) which was a key club in in the French Quarter, uh, one of those places that opened at midnight. So that was like 1967. I came, had just come from North Dakota not too long ago, and she was Miss Miles City, Montana. So we realized we had that in common, and so we became good friends over that, and then we became roommates and uh, worked a bunch of different places in the quarter. She worked at La Strada on the corner of Bourbon, and I worked at uh, Joanne Clevenger's little bar next door called Andy's, which was a little French Quarter bohemian bar. So through the late 60s, we, uh, we were buddies and ran the quarter, and that was our beginning. That's there. a very special time. <laughs> what a special time in the New Orleans French Quarter that was. Frank, when did you meet Paul? Well, it was, it was very fortuitous how Paul and I met. Um, I was 24 years old, and I was without a job, an apartment, and a car. And so I moved back in with my folks. And after a couple of weeks of that, I realized I had to do something. So I picked up the classified ads, and there was an ad for Commander's Palace. This was 78. And it said, uh, now hiring Creole cooks or people willing to learn Creole cuisine. That struck a chord with me. At that point in my life, I decided I wanted to, you know, work in kitchens for a profession. And I wanted to learn. So I got mom to drive me down for an interview. And uh, at Commander's, there was a lot of people applying. I had like a one-hour interview with Paul. And uh, at the end of it, he said, okay, good. Come back next week and we'll talk again. So I came back the second week. There was a few less applicants. And uh, we talked for another hour. And he said, okay, great, Frank, come back next week and we'll talk again. So I came back a third time and we talked for another hour. And he said, um, we're going to give you a chance, but you have a choice. Uh, we'll hire you as a broiler cook here at Commander's and, and pay you a good wage and expect a lot out of you. Or you can start as an apprentice in the pantry making salads and 
making very little money, and, but you can expect a lot out of me. So that's what I chose. I worked six months at Commanders, uh, every station in the house. Uh, so it was really my culinary education. And after six months, he asked me if I wanted to go to Cape Paul's, which I'd never heard of. Uh, they had been open for lunch for a few months. They wanted to open for dinner, as it turns out. So I just said, yes, chef, you know, whatever you want me to do. So that's when I went down to Charter Street and uh, met Sandy. Well, one of the astounding things that I learned from you, Sandy, that fateful day in the cathedral, was that you were there the day K. Paul's opened up. Well, actually, to go back to a few days before that, I was working at a little place on Decatur Street called Parker's, and all of a sudden I saw somebody knocking on the window inside, and I looked and it was Kay, Kay Prudhomme. And I went out and she said, I gotta tell you something. She said, we found this little spot. It's on Charter Street, and she said, we wanna open up a little joint. Paul's gonna get us a few specials together. You can work the floor, I'll work the bar, can you do it? And of course, I was already working. I said, well, I'll come and help you open up. That'll be my gift to you just for three days. We'll open up and see what happens, you know. So it was July 3rd, 1979, and it was Kay's mom, Kay's dad, and me and Kay. And we were in the front all scurrying around and wiping the tables and took those cheap little napkins, put them on each place with a fork on each one and we said okay well let's open up the doors and see if anybody comes in so the first day we did you know a few people and then the second day a lot of those same people came back and brought you know other people so by the third day when theoretically your gift was done did you decide that was it and you just had to stay well I had planned that I was going to go out of town for a vacation for about a month and I was gone about two weeks, and I got a phone call. She said, help, we are like, this thing has just totally taken off, and I can't wait for a month. So I cut my vacation short and came back, and uh, by then it was starting to really happen. So at what point do you show up there? I believe they had been open about eight months and uh, had developed a strong, you know, local business lunch sort of crowd uh, just Monday through Friday for lunch and now they wanted to open for dinner and I was just learning how to cook mind you I would come in about 10:30, and and chef Paul and I would go over the lunch menu and then he would leave to go to commanders his real job and I would do lunch service with Miss Thelma and her daughter Cheryl was our dishwasher and then after lunch I'd clean up the stove, break down the line, and Chef would call me. We had a little wall phone by the stove <laughs> where I learned a lot of recipes over the phone. <laughs> and he would call me in the afternoon and would make the dinner menu literally at 2 in the afternoon, uh, see what was left from lunch and what else we wanted to add, what was fresh that day. And I did uh, dinner service by myself with uh, a dishwasher for a while. And as it got busier, he brought in helpers for me. And after about three months, his contract was up with the Brennans, and he came over to K. Paul's full time, and then things really took off. 
I mean, we, were, we grew from 30 or 40 covers a night to 80, 90, 100, 120. So the line starts forming out on right. Charter Street. What did that little kitchen look like? Because it was kind of a little postage stamp, wasn't it? It was a dump. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the business there when Kay and Paul took it over was the Austin Inn, which was just like a bar and grill and maybe some other activities. <laughs> okay. um, and so the, the kitchen was tiny. Uh, there was a six-burner stove, a steam table, and a fryer. Uh, you could hardly turn around. Uh, it had a very ancient window AC unit that went out 11 times in one lunch period, I remember distinctly. Um, so we were just improvising, you know. We had a, a mismatched collection of old pots and pans, and the china was just mi mixed-matched stuff. There was nothing new in the place. And it, that was really the magic of what happened on Charter Street. Everything was on the fly. The menu-making, that was our modus operandi for years. Uh, we'd make the dinner menu after lunch, you know, at 1.30, 2 in the afternoon, and then we had a couple hours to go produce it. And uh, that's the way we did things. And, and so it was a very wild, adventurous time. We were the Wild West. I mean, it was, it was crazy. We were, well, first of all, the first group of waitresses, uh, first five, six women that worked there, we became, we had a tremendous bond, and we still do to this day. We were so close, and we had so much fun, and we were constantly laughing and, and carried over to the customers. I mean, We'd insult people, but with love, you know. In <laughs> fact, if people came in and they felt like they didn't get, you know, kind of insulted or, or, you know, played with a little bit, they would feel like they missed out on something. And then, of course, we started giving the gold stars. One of the waitresses who had been a teacher, she had these gold stars, and she said, you finished everything on your plate. I'm going to give you a gold star. And so that, for one whole night, became really fun, you know, and so we, the next night we said, well, let's do it again, and everybody laughed. Oh, you left your green beans, you get a green star, and then it became part of the thing you had to give gold stars. It was, uh, it was just wild, and I mean, you know, here would be people from CNN interviewing Paul back there. He'd be aligned to get his autographed cookbook. You know, here's celebrities up at the bar. Here's Jerry Garcia standing in line, and it's raining outside. I mean, you know, come on. And we're just running around like crazy. It was, it was so much fun. It was, it was just, uh, just a barrel of laughs. And another sort of unconventional thing, other than the typical experience at a lunch counter, usually you can kind of pick who you're going to eat with, but there was none of that going on there either. Oh, no. Oh, no. Everybody sat with everybody, and it, that would include, um, you know, celebrities. I can remember one time there was a table of six, and it was this little couple. They were probably from Iowa, and another couple, and then it was um, Dave Burns from Talking Heads. Talking Heads. <laughs> oh, right. So, and, you know... I don't think they knew until they left. The little couple from Iowa said to me, she said, you know, those nice young men, they have a band, and they invited us to their show tonight. And isn't that sweet of them? And I thought, well, wait till they get home and tell their grandkids that the talking heads gave them tickets to see their little band playing, you know. But everybody would meet people and just this totally unconventional, you know, people from different walks of life meeting each other. 
that was really part of the fun of it. Coming up next, our conversation with Sandy Hansen and Frank Brightston continues as Frank recalls the day that Paul Prudhomme told him it was time to go. But first, how did Paul Prudhomme's name become forever associated with the redfish? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily. The Redfish Grill is now popping up on weekends, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, from 11 a.m. till 9 p.m. Visit redfishgrill.com to learn more. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How did Chef Paul Prudhomme's name become forever associated with redfish? When Chef Paul first opened K. Paul's restaurant in 1979, fish cooked over a wood-fired grill had just become all the rage. His tiny French Quarter kitchen couldn't possibly accommodate a grill like the ones he'd been grilling fish on at Commander's and Mr. B's. So, with typical Cajun ingenuity, Chef Paul figured out that he could get a similar effect from a white-hot cast-iron skillet. From the time he introduced the menu item that he called blackened redfish, the lines at his restaurant began to form and got longer and longer until blackened redfish was so popular that the state of Louisiana rewrote commercial harvesting regulations to keep the species from being fished into extinction. I'm Poppy Tooker, and for over 40 years now, blackened redfish has been some good Louisiana Eats. We've been reflecting on the legacy of K. Paul's Louisiana Kitchen and the founders of the iconic New Orleans restaurant, K. and Paul Prudhomme. In July, K. Paul's closed its doors after over 40 years in business. Following the death of Chef Paul in 2015, Louisiana Eats spoke with K-Paul veterans Sandy Hansen and Chef Frank Brightston. 
They shared stories of working at the restaurant in its earliest days and memories of their friends and mentors, Kay and Paul. You know, I have been very blessed in my life, uh, and I owe everything to Paul and Kay. For me personally, you know, that was my formative years as a person, as a chef, as a man. And it was also the formative years for American cuisine because it was around that time, around 1980, when, when regional American cuisine became the hottest topic in the food press. And it was literally a phenomenon. You know, Paul never had a marketing firm or PR person or anything like that. You know, this all just happened. But back then, this was before Paul started writing cookbooks. We didn't have any recipes, nothing. And this was how Creole cuisine was passed from generation to generation through the restaurants and homes of New Orleans. And I got to work with the greatest Creole chefs you've never heard of, like Raymond Sutton, Stanley Jackson, Armand Jante, who went on to have restaurants here in New Orleans, Leroy Thomas. These are the guys and gals that mentored me. And once K. Paul's got busy, uh, we opened upstairs. So we were doing lunch and dinner upstairs and down. We had two kitchens with four shifts running, no recipes. Every day, every day before we opened, we all as cooks had to bring a sample of what we made that day to chef's table to get tasted. And if it wasn't right, we fixed it. But the beauty of chef was he understood how to give you your freedom, your creative freedom. If it tasted good, it's good. Let's roll with it. My sauce piquant was totally different from the other chefs. There's many roads to get to the same place. And it's really a lesson in diversity. And that's what I'm grateful for. So then the fateful day comes when you and Marna have married now and y'all are all down at Kay Paul's together and Kay and Paul sit you down, Frank, and tell you it's time for you to go. How'd that conversation happen? Yeah, I mean, who would have thunk? Um, my last year at K. Paul's, uh, Chef pulled me out of the kitchen and he put me in purchasing. And in hindsight, I realized now that he was prepping me to go out on my own. And literally one day, uh, he and Kay were at Paul's little table in the rear of the dining room, and they asked me to come out and sit down. And Paul said verbatim, we think you're ready to go out on your own. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I just said, okay. And uh, they enabled us to open Brightson's. And by enabling, I mean they gave me everything I needed. They set me up with a CPA, an attorney, two of the best in the world, a real estate agent. And it took, a, you know, a few weeks, but I found the spot. And then they came up with $120,000 out of their pocket. They wanted Brightson's <laughs> probably more than I did. And so Chef negotiated the deal for me. We signed the lease, the, the business deal. And he said, here's your last paycheck. Good luck. You better open quick. So I knew what that meant. So we 
went to work and we got the keys to this building and we opened five days later. And Sandy, you came along too? Well, I did. However, Kay did not want me to leave. You know, I was her right hand, you know, her person there. And uh, I said, I've got to be part of this, you know. So, um, so yeah, we all came. We all came and we were here, like Frank said, we got everybody we knew out here scraping and painting and five days later, boom. It was amazing. This is the thing about Paul. Nothing was impossible. Mm -hmm. Nothing. If you could dream it, we would make it happen. And he had pretty wild dreams. Over the seven years that we worked with Paul and Kay, we had the wildest life experience you could ever hope for. I'd like to say one thing that just occurred to me that Paul said to us one time, all of us waitresses, he got us around and he said, you know, it's very seldom you get to be part of something that makes a difference. And he said, we've made a difference. You know, as remarkable as my story is and Sandy's story is, and, you know, I mean, my story is really remarkable, what he did for me. And the thing to understand about Paul is he, this is just one of thousands of stories. One thing Paul really respected and admired in a person was your willingness to work hard to achieve something, no matter who you were. Whether you were a tap dancer in the streets of the French Quarter, working, sweating, trying to make some extra money, or whether you were a young cook with aspirations uh, to, to make a career of it, he would give you a chance. And if you applied yourself, you were rewarded. And that's the way he works. And, and most of the stories um, of, of Paul making a difference in people's lives we'll never know. Um, but I want to share one with you. Um, if I can get through it. One day I was in purchasing and a lady walked in off the street and uh, she said, would you like to buy my crab meat? And I said, well, you know, we, we get crab meat from a couple of different wholesalers. Uh, what do you got? She pulled out a Ziploc of jumbo lump crab meat and it was pretty. And I said, how much do you want for that? She said, $5. At the time, the market was about $9 a pound. So I said, well, let's go see Chef. He was in his test kitchen. So I brought her back to meet Chef. I left them to talk. And from then on, we started buying her crab meat uh, twice a week. And uh, she would bring it in, drop it off with me, and then go in the test kitchen and see Paul to get paid. And um, no one else saw this, but I did. He would reach into his pocket, pull out a wad of cash, and pay her. And then every time she came in, he peeled off an extra hundred or two and put that in her pocket, too. Well, the story is this lady was uh, the wife of a crabber, and her husband had hurt his back and couldn't work. So she was buying crabs from their crabber friends, steaming them in her home kitchen, and she and the kids would sit around the kitchen table picking crab meat to survive. Paul took good care of her. Well, Paul took good care of everybody who came into his life, and we are all the better 
for having had that Paul Prudhomme in the world with us as long as we did. Thank you all so much for sharing these stories with me today. Thank you, Poppy. It was a pleasure. Good cooking, good eating, good loving. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Sandy Hansen and Chef Frank Brightston with memories of Paul Prudhomme, his wife Kay, and the iconic New Orleans restaurant, Kay Paul's. Our conversation was recorded after Chef Paul's death in 2015. In July, K. Paul's permanently closed its doors after over 40 years in business. going into our archives to remember writer Julia Reed, who died in August after battling cancer. She was 59. For decades, Julia reported for the New York Times, Vogue, Newsweek, and a host of other publications covering topics including politics, art, food, and hospitality. A chronicler of Southern life and culture, Julia used her platform to advocate for the revival of her native Mississippi Delta. She was also known for her irreverent humor and for telling outrageous tales from her own life. Her wit and joie de vivre were on full display when we spoke back in 2013 after the publication of her book, But Mama Always Put Vodka in Her Sangria, the volume relates a number of Julia's rollicking culinary escapades and even includes tips on how to throw the ultimate party. I began by asking Julia about the book's scintillating title. When my editor came up with that as the title, I thought, oh, Lord. I was telling him the story, and he said, that's got to be the title. And the story goes like this. I was still writing the food column in the New York Times Magazine, and I had gone to Spain and fallen instantly in love with the cuisine. And so I smuggled all this stuff out of there and I wanted to come back and try to recreate some recipes. And I was gonna write a column on Spanish food. Every time I did a column like that, I would test the recipes on my friends first. And so I called up my good friend, Elizabeth McGee Cordes and said, I'm having a Spanish dinner party. And she's like, great. I'll bring Mama Sangria. She's got this great sangria recipe. And her mother was my mother's best friend, and we all grew up together in Mississippi. And anyway, so I'm like, fine, fine. I had no real interest in sangria. I'm not even <laughs> sure I'd ever made any, you know, whatever. I just sort of vaguely knew it was in it, which is like red wine and sometimes a little cognac and Grand Marnier and some fruit. So anyway, she brings these fruity-looking nice pictures of sangria, and we put them on the table, and I put out some more d'oeuvres. And I go in the kitchen, and I had not been in that kitchen like maybe 20 minutes uh -huh. to finish cooking. And I come outside, and people are, like, making out with each other. I mean, it's <laughs> like, you know, they're falling down in the bushes, like doing, doing totally inappropriate things, talking too loud, you know, laughing too hard. And I'm like, Elizabeth, she was still standing. Uh -huh. um, I said, Elizabeth, what in the world did you put in that sangria? And she's like, a liter of vodka. <laughs> and like, and oh, so, the secret ingredient. I know. And my mouth just fell open. And she's looking at me like I'm the one that was crazy. Like, of course she put a liter of vodka in the sangria. And so 
when I still didn't pick up my jaw off the floor, she said, well, Mama always put vodka in her sangria. Well, you are a woman who can and has lived all sorts of places in the world, but you grew up in the Mississippi Delta. I did. And... You know, I have to say, reading about your life there, it really sounded like an inordinately fun place to grow up. It was really fun. And part of the reason is because, I mean, you know, you're sitting around in the middle of the Mississippi Delta. There's not a whole lot to do all the time. Pretty much as soon as the place was settled. I mean, I found some diaries of people in the 1800s going to these like four and five day house parties and dancing. And, you know, the waters came up. So they're just raising the piano to the second floor and that kind of stuff. So it's there's still there's, there's still a little bit of that kind of mad abandoned entertaining well, down there. Your mama and her friends, they really did know how to have a good time there. And so you grew up observing that and then I later did. became sort of a participating member of that <laughs> coterie, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we had there was a lot of political change and stuff going on when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s and uh the Delta was sort of a safe haven. It was not quite as violent as the rest of the state and mm-hmm. we had a great newspaper, you know, Hunting Carter, the second who was originally from here from Hammond wrote editorials that won in the Pulitzer Prize for preaching racial tolerance long before it was in vogue. And so we had a lot of people coming to town and you'd have to give them a party. Yeah, That's when I decided course. I wanted to be a reporter because every time a reporter came to town, they had a huge party for him. And, you know, he'd wake up off the floor in, in our living room and I would be catching the school bus or something. And this guy would be sort of <laughs> sort of rearing his hungover head and writing like on the typewriter in those days, you know, Dateline Little Rock. And I'd be <laughs> sort of smart like kid like, aren't you supposed to be there? Yeah. He's like, shut up, kid. So I'm thinking, well, this is a great way to make a living. <laughs> well, I have to say the thing I think that was definitely the most intriguing and certain shocked me was your chapter entitled Burger Heaven. Okay, <laughs> If somebody had bet me a million dollars who worked at McDonald's, you would have been dead last. Now <laughs> explain that. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, I still have my polyester pantsuit with the zip front and the golden arches on it. I want you And to you know. loved it. Well, it was fun. I mean, okay, so what <laughs> happened was, yes, okay, so I wrecked my mother's car. Uh-huh. And I was 14. You That's can... what comes of all that partying. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, it was the daytime. I was actually sober. And, you know, I'm 14. But uh, I was not as good of a driver as I thought, apparently. Anyway, so she they're out of town. The first thing I try to do is fix the car. No avail. Plus, I didn't have any money. So I'm thinking, what can I do to, like, get maximum sympathy from my parents and make them almost forget that I've wrecked my mother's car that I shouldn't have been driving in the first place? So. A classmate had told me that they were hiring <laughs> underage kids at McDonald's. <laughs> so there was a very nice quote-unquote manager there. I go down and get a job. It was totally unimpressive to my parents who grounded me anyway. And now I'm like grounded and I'm stuck working at McDonald's. But I started having a good time. I mean, it was sort of fun. Um, <laughs> we had a very hilarious night manager named Melvin who ultimately absconded with the contents of the safe. But before he did that, he was a pretty heavy drinker and... uh he instructed us one night not to serve anybody Coke out of, like, that far-left Coke dispenser. And it turns out he hadn't found a novel way to make himself a bourbon and Coke. So he'd just be cruising through behind the counter. God only knows how many kids or teetotalers or whatever we, we got drunk accidentally. But... um that was it. That was the beginning of my career. And I still love a Big Mac, I'll have you know. Well, as Southern as all your stories are, <laughs> you just take everybody along with you on this 
whirlwind world tour that is the life of Julia Reed. We go to Paris, we go to London, <laughs> we even cruise the Nile. So we go to Afghanistan. Right. When was your first significant trip abroad and what's your favorite place? Oh man, it's too hard to pick a favorite place, but my first trip abroad was to France because I was dying to go and I was like, I was still 14 when that happened, um, you know, on a study abroad thing. Um, yeah. But when I started working for Newsweek and then for Vogue, you know, I'd go to places that I would never have gone on my own. Like, you don't wake up and say, I think I'm going to take a vacation and go on the Trans-Siberian Railway across Russia. Um, but that's a pretty nifty assignment. It was, but, well, no. I mean, there was no, like, shower on the train. It was pretty wow. horrible. And I was going to some women's conference in China, and there were a bunch of German lesbians and French intellectuals and it was just you know it's like okay here i am on the train uh, on the train with them but it was oh. kind of fun you know and, and they you know and then i didn't have the right visa and they dumped me in a forest in Novosibirsk and <laughs> had to make my way back to moscow and in retrospect those are always the great trips of course <laughs> well i loved the way you approached this book by dividing it into three sections and those sections are eating drinking and making <laughs> merry and of course the book is filled with all of this very cosmopolitan elegance and there's chapters entitled of Paris and pins <laughs> men and martinis <laughs> and of course champagne Charlotte mm. but then Julia you bring up this concoction called yucca flat <laughs> Well, as much as I do love a Pimm's Cup and a Pimm's Royale, especially in the Ritz <laughs> bar in Paris, I had an equally big fondness for a Yucca Flats just because I don't know what made me think about it. I, I was writing a column for Newsweek, and I started thinking of summer drinks and how it changes and everybody starts putting more fruity things and you switch from dark to light liquor. And I started, it reminded me of the Yucca Flats that I drank at our neighbor's house where I learned all kind of important things in life, like how to play poker and how to hold my beer. And, you know, it was my first experience <laughs> with all the boys in the neighborhood. <laughs> and, um, our neighbor had this huge big playroom and it had everything that you needed in life, like a pool table, a stereo, a poker table, and, a, you know, an old couch. And in the summertime, they would the older boys would mix up a yucca flats in a trash can. So I started thinking, I wonder what was in there. I just remembered it being really delicious and like lots of squeezed lemons and limes floating around in there and some cherries and God only knows what else and a lot of ice. So I go online and I realize that like everybody's pretty much lived the same life because there are all these <laughs> things online going, oh yeah, this is great to drink when you're having poker or sometimes we mix it with our feet and it's always in a garbage can so i'm thinking this is like some international trend the yucca flats everybody had one at one point or another anyway it's a delicious summer drink so i and sort of reimagine the recipe and it's quite a punch bowl i mean really, it is well a galvanized trash can is, it can be very very chic i'll have you know i have like this whole dream of having a big party having nothing but huge garbage cans full of yucca flats to be sort really of reverse chic party. i'm telling you i love that idea maybe i'll serve big macs alongside that'd be grand <laughs> yeah but just make sure that they're on a silver tray and there's a waiter exactly you. we're revisiting our 2013 interview with writer julia reed who died in august at the age of 59 We'll hear more of our conversation when Louisiana Eats returns after the break.
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. If you're just joining us, we're remembering journalist and author Julia Reed, who died in August at the age of 59. Let's get back to our 2013 interview with Julia, recorded after the publication of her book, But Mama Always Put Vodka in Her Sangria. The collection of essays chronicles Julia's culinary adventures around the globe and presents tips on how to host the perfect party. The Greenville native split her time between her Mississippi Delta hometown, New York City, Washington, and eventually New Orleans, where she found a place for herself in the Garden District. You know, when I was a kid in the Delta, we'd either go north to Memphis or south to New Orleans, depending on how much time we wanted to spend in the car. And New Orleans usually won. You know, it's mm-hmm. like people sort of like, well, if we leave now, we can get to Galatoire's, you know, in time for dinner or whatever. I found out that the train from Greenville, Mississippi, my hometown, did not stop until you got to New Orleans. There was no point in going anywhere else in Mississippi. And it was a direct train. So there's always been an affinity. I mean, you know, we, growing up. And then I came for Jazz Fest, and I heard myself saying at about 3 o'clock in the morning after a post-Jazz Fest party, oh, yeah, I'm getting an apartment here. And uh, I thought, well, then I guess I should. Yeah. And I did. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. And in your opinion, what do you think is the worst mistake that nervous hostesses often make? Trying too hard, I think. You know, thinking, ooh, I'm having company over, and i got to make some really incredibly overwrought, fancy thing. And I went through that when I was a kid, and I was like the youngest person at Newsweek in the Washington Bureau. I did know how to cook because i you know, grown up, as you said, watching my mother and her friends entertain and cooking. So I thought, well, I can impress them with, even though like they actually have bylines and written books and stuff. I'm like, I can, <laughs> I can give a good dinner party. But instead of just sort of cooking a squash casserole or whatever, the first big dinner party I had, I was just drove my mother insane. And I'm calling her up on the phone, and it was during... Um, the advent of Nouvelle Cuisine. So in the New York Times in those days, there were all these fussy, complicated, but not actually very good sounding recipes. So I was driving Mama crazy on the phone in the days when long distance actually cost money. Do you think I should have this or this? And I'm going through all these recipes and she finally just cut me off and said, why don't you just make something that tastes good? And it sounds silly, but it's not. I mean, I, I became a food writer entirely accidentally when I was still writing for Vogue because I had a party for an editor there who was leaving and it wasn't my usual crowd but I had my usual menu which was like 
biscuits with country ham on it and a big old bowl of crab meat maison like they make at Galatoire's. That except, never fails, does I know. it? Deviled eggs, which apparently nobody had ever seen before because they were like tracing the trays around. And <laughs> these were in the days when in New York, you know, the most popular sort of cocktail party fare was stuff like dried out chicken saute on a stick, which is like so horrible. The next morning, this uh, editor at the Times called me up and said, would you like to write about food? Because they'd never seen anything quite like a stuffed egg, apparently, or a ham biscuit. Well, that was the best party ever then. Good. Congratulations. <laughs> that was quite an accomplishment. But, I mean, it just goes to show you, you know, it's like it really is, you know, have some food that tastes good. I mean, I always, my go-to hors d'oeuvre is things like fried oysters. I mean, what's not to love? Well, in all of this entertaining talk, and I know you give dinner parties and I have never submitted anybody to, nor have I been submitted to, what you refer to as table talk. Oh, God. Would you explain that table talk <laughs> thing? Well, that chapter is going to ensure that I'm never invited back to a New York dinner party again, which is okay. Um, no, I remember the first time that happened to me. I was at a dinner table at this sort of very famous book agent's house, and her husband was a writer, and, and there were all these sort of what are folks there? I was sitting next to a federal judge and Kimba Wood, who had just been turned <laughs> down as or had to withdraw from being uh, Clinton's attorney general nominee because she had the typical sort of she'd forgotten to pay her babysitter's taxes, that kind of stuff. But there are all these, you know, sort of tabloid names there. And at one point, you know, we were eating some not very delicious food and uh, the hostess goes, you know, ding, ding, ding on the glass. And says, okay, table talk. And she actually used the term. And we had to go around the table saying what we each thought about, like, you know, I can't remember now, like the latest Supreme Court nominee or, you know, what's <laughs> going on with the current immigration bill or blah, blah. And instead of having, like, a discussion about that, which would be okay, it was literally like going around, you know, it's like when you're a kid and you have to say what you're thankful for at the table or whatever. Yeah. Um and it gave all these pompous people, you know, sort of a soapbox to stand on and talk endlessly. And it was just sort of, you've got to be kidding me. And then, like, I mean, I was with a couple of good friends, and we hit the nearest bar and had to, like, drink ourselves into oblivion just to get over it. But, <laughs> and then another time I was at a party, same thing happened, and this guy had just come back from the Gaza Strip, and he starts talking about this. And my views on the subject were extremely different from his in the first place. But there was no chance of like having an argument with him because he never shut up. Right. You know, I'd rather be in a place where right after the Gaza Strip evening, I had a party in, at my mother's beach house in Florida. And everybody got in this, like, <laughs> this big political discussion. We started beating one friend of mine on the head with a loaf of bread and stuff. I mean, it was a lot more fun just to have a full-out, good-natured argument. And, you know, yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine anything worse than staged conversation no contrived parties not my cup of tea scripted either. if you have to script your dinner party you need some new friends <laughs> i'll say <laughs> author and journalist julia reed speaking with us in 2013 julia died in august after battling cancer she was 59 in the last decade of her life, Julia helped transform the annual Delta Hot Tamale Festival in her hometown of Greenville from a local fair into a national literary and culinary event to benefit the city. 
Julia invited Louisiana Eats to the festival in 2017, and we devoted an entire episode to that rollicking good time. You can relive that fun by visiting poppytooker.com. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting along with recipes and videos too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars. D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. D'Agostino's all-natural preservative-free pasta is available in traditional forms, as well as their signature alligator, crawfish, and fleur-de-lis-shaped pastas. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the baby of Dickie Brennan and Company's family of restaurants, Acorn, now open in City Park. Located at the Louisiana Children's Museum, Acorn is open Wednesday through Sunday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Coffee, breakfast, lunch, and snacks served up with some of the best views in the city. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.